The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And uh, we had a lot of fun putting together today's show. We're going to talk about one of the luminaries uh, in the the beginning of the Internet age, Ted Nelson. He invented the the concept of uh, hyperlinks. 30 years before the World Wide Web was invented. So we're going to go back and explore the the life and times of Ted Nelson. We're also going to look at the history of the emoji. They have a long and illustrious career going way back earlier than you ever would imagine. It's going to be a fun show today. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Troy in Newark. Dear Doc and Andrew, I'm confused by the various ways to shut down my computer. When should I use sleep mode or hibernation mode rather than just shutting it down? I'm really confused here. Love the podcast. Troy in Newark, New Jersey. Well, uh, Troy, the sleep mode is most convenient because it allows you to start working with your PC where you left off. Um, however, it's the least power-efficient mode because uh, it's, it, it uses uh, less power than, the, than being completely on, but it uses, of course, more power than, than, when you, uh, than, than, than just turning it off. Now, hibernation is actually a deeper sleep, and it's essentially... So what happens is with sleep mode, all the information which you have temporarily stored in RAM is maintained in RAM, okay? So your computer goes to sleep. It keeps the RAM unchanged. Then when you take it out of the sleep mode, you're good to go because everything that was in RAM is still there. But while you are asleep, your computer... um, is using some power because it has to keep the RAM alive. Now, sleep mode has a protection. If you start running out of battery power, it will, in fact, save the information to your hard drive and then shut down. So you can't be guaranteed that your that your hard drive is completely off during the sleep mode because it may, in fact, be saving to the hard drive if the compute if the uh, if the battery power gets low. Now. Hibernation mode is slightly different. It takes all the information that is stored in RAM and it stores it to the hard drive completely. So the computer does not have to stay on to keep the RAM alive. So then it just shuts down. And then when you come out of hibernation mode, 
it reads all the information from the hard drive, puts it into RAM, and it starts you up at exactly the place that you were in when you shut down the computer. Now, this is useful if you've got a whole bunch of documents open, you've got a lot of active work, and you'd like to actually start where you left off. The hibernation mode is pretty good. Now, if you have to you know, to shut down your laptop and carry it somewhere, um, it's probably better, and then you want to restart your work when you get there. Uh, you could use the hibernation mode safely because the computer's off, the hard drive is safe. Because you never want to active use the hard drive while you're carrying your laptop around. You could damage it if it tries to write something while you're vibrating it. So sleep mode is not probably good if you want to carry your, your hard drive around because it could be saving to the hard drive if the battery gets low. Hibernation mode is pretty good if you want to restart all your work when you start it up again. Now, the disadvantage with hibernation mode, it takes longer to start up because it's reading all this information off the hard drive. Then, of course, you've got shutdown, where basically it just essentially shuts down, closes out all your documents, and then when you start up again, you've got to open up all your documents again. So the advantage of shutting down, though, is if you've got, if you've got any unusual states where you haven't released RAM because a program didn't shut down properly, or you've got a bunch of temp files open up, when you shut down, it clears the deck on all of that. So when you start it up again, you've got a clean slate. So I typically shut down my computer so I could have a clean slate. But when I'm in the middle of a lot of uh, work that I'm doing and I got to carry my computer around with me, like put it in the bag and go somewhere, I might put it in the hibernation mode. When I'm at home on my desktop and I'm doing a lot of work um, and I just want to leave it, I'll, I'll leave it in the sleep mode. And then when I come back, it's there. So you've got all three operations. And you can basically decide when you shut the lap of your uh, when you shut down your laptop, you can basically set it up to open up whatever mode you want. If you go to the settings, you can say if I shut down my laptop lid, put it in sleep mode, put it in hibernation mode, or shut down. You can basically direct that. What I have now, because I, if I'm ever going to shut, if I'm ever going to close the lid of my hard of my uh, laptop. I, I have it automatically shutting down the computer because when I close the lid, I put it in a bag and I go somewhere. But, but Doc, that was a great question. Yeah, it's, I have a question for you, though, because uh, the PC you're using, this laptop you're using, is not an Apple product, is it? No, no. See, I don't know that Apple has a hibernation mode as opposed to sleep mode. I think it's just sleep or shut down on the Apple. Really? Yeah, on the Apple laptop. I don't ever remember seeing the word hibernate. Yeah, well, you should check. I, I, that, that's, that'll be a good research project for <laughs> next, we week, next week's show. <laughs> that's always something because else. <laughs> hibernation is really a great feature. Yeah, actually. yeah. Unless they, um, yeah. So we'll see what, we'll look into that. We'll, we'll check into okay. that. Okay, all right. Another yeah, assignment. we got an email from Leslie in Oakton. Dear Tech Talk, I have a two-factor authentication enabled on several of my accounts, and I'm getting ready to buy a new phone in a few days, but I'm afraid I'll have a problem when I try to log onto those accounts after I switch phones. Uh, what I'm asking is that will having two-factor authentication enabled on my accounts cause me to get locked out when I get a new phone? Well, Leslie, you really don't need to worry about getting locked out of your accounts because if you get, um, if you get a new phone, you'll have the same phone number. So the second factor will be sent to the to the to the phone number, not to the phone. So you'll you'll still get it without any problem at all. 
By the way, a two-factor authentication, you have two factors, a password and then a code that's sent to your cell phone. It's, it's, it's a more secure connection. So you log in with your password. It sends a text message to your cell phone with a four to six digit number that then you enter into the website as your second authentication. And so you have to physically have control of your phone if you want to log on. It's a very good secure feature. Now, the problem is, uh, Leslie, if you, for instance, are going to get a new phone with a new carrier and a new phone number, that is a problem. So if you're going to get a new phone number, uh, you're going to have to turn off two-factor authentication before you get the new phone number. Otherwise, you're going to have a problem. Now, there is somewhere, there is a way that you can log into a phone without the second factor. And you, you can basically, um, you can ask your device to send you a code, like an emergency logon code, if you don't have the second factor. And that'll be a long number. You can ask your account to send you that code like uh, you, you could have it for your logon for Microsoft Windows or for your Apple device, and take and write down that code and put it in a secure place so that if you ever don't have the second factor, you can still log on to your account without, with that code. But if you're going to get a new phone number, Leslie, definitely disable two-factor authentication. That's the easiest way to do. Then re-enable it with the new phone number. We got an email from Howard in Washington. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an Acer laptop that came with Windows 10 and now I'm having a problem with it. When I, uh, when I click the shutdown icon, it shuts down just fine. The problem is when I close the lid, it does not shut the laptop down like my last laptop. It goes into sleep mode. Oh, Howard's got the same problem with shutting down his laptop. Okay, Howard, okay. You can easily set your laptop to go into any mode you want. You got a Windows machine. So what you want to do is you simply tweak the power options. You go to the start button and then click on the word power. And then you click on power and sleep settings. And then you'll click on additional power settings. And then in additional power settings, you choose what closing the lid does in the left-hand column. And you simply say, uh, tell it to, when I close the lid, you just tell it to shut down, and then you click Save. At that point on, from that point on, whenever you shut down your laptop, it will just shut off. But you could also choose Hibernate, or you could choose Sleep, whichever one you want. Uh, we got an email from June in Burke. Dear Doc and Andrew, I'm worried about Google tracking. How can I see what information Google has collected and what change, and how to, and and then change my permissions? I want to take control of my data profile. Thanks, June and Burke. Well, June, that's a good decision. Google collects a lot of your history and shares it for a profit. Uh, they, they claim it serves you so that when you're driving by a store, they can zip and add to you about that store. But don't believe it. They make money. They sell your, they sell your information, and it's basically just a little bit loss of privacy every day that you use them. Now you can check your Google activity and go to myactivity.google.com, myactivity.google.com, and it'll bring up your, uh, your activity tracking page. Now, here, here's something that's a little bit scary. 
I turned off all the tracking a couple years ago. And I went into myactivity.google.com. It was turned back on again. Whoa. Why did that happen? I don't know. It may have been I went to some place and they said, do you want to, you know, it may have been some innocuous question that I answered. And they just took that into interpretation that they turned it on again. And I'm telling you, they track everything. I, I, I started looking at all my tracking activity. It just, it just goes back further and further and further. So I went back and turned them all off again. If you're in your myactivity.google.com. So uh, my advice is go back and check it periodically because they'll trick you to turn it back on again. And I'm pretty careful with this stuff, yet it was turned on. Now, you you can if you want. I mean, if you don't, I mean, the tracking does have some advantages uh, in that it will give you ads that, you know, if you like targeted ads and that sort of thing. So one thing that you could do, you do have an option to have it erase everything that's more than three months old. Or you could erase it all. Now, what I did, I just turned them all off. Then I went into the history, and I just deleted all the history, so they don't know anything about me now. But you've really got to be careful with this because it will come back on. But the good, but I, I have to give Google kudos. They do have a good My Activity page, and they do tell you what they track, and they do let you turn it off. They just turn it on when you least expect it. Uh, we got an email from Barbie in Reston. Dear Doc and Andrew, I've been sending talking emojis. They're called emojis to all my iPhone friends via text message. Actually, iMessage. But I also have Android friends, you know. Yeah, you, you, actually, you, 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 it's hard to have only iPhone friends. Everybody has both iPhone friends and Android friends. Can I send emojis? to my Android friends too, or is this just an Apple thing? Barbie in Reston, Virginia. Well, Barbie, you can use Animoji uh, as iMessages. Uh, you can use them uh, on iMessage. You can use them as stickers on FaceTime. You can use these Animojis in a lot of places. And you can also send them to Android users. So when you actually send an iMessage with an Animoji, it makes a little movie and it attaches that movie to the iMessage and sends it. Now, iMessage displays that emoji very attractively. But because it's a movie, you can simply send a text message with the movie attached to an Android friend, and they will be able to view the movie. So, yes, you can send it to your Android friends. Now, they'll have to turn on the sound. When you get the emoji, you'll see a little speaker with a line through it, because a lot of people really don't like when they go to text messages, they start talking to them. Well, here's uh, the thing, and that's true of Apple, by the way, not just on, on Android, because when you sent mm -hmm. me, and we'll hear about this a little later in the show, when you sent me the, uh, an Animoji, uh, I actually had to uh, un unmute it. So mute yes. is like the default setting, even on Apple. Okay, yeah, you, you have to unmute it, which I think is a good feature. Oh, yeah, because, it's fine. You don't need something blurring at you. Because there's nothing worse yeah. you're in a movie theater looking at your text messages. <laughs> exactly. And then they start talking to you. And, and that's the last place you'd expect it, you know, in the texting app. The whole point was it's called a texting app, not a talking app. So, yes, that's a, I think it's a, good, it's a good default setting. It is, it is a very good default setting. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, we will. And uh, next, we'll get to know the man who coined the term hypertext and many other words. 
He did this quite a few years, too, before hypertext or hyperlinks ever became a reality. So we'll hear about this guy next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Theodore Holm Nelson. Theodore Holm Nelson is an American pioneer in information technology. He coined the terms hypertext and hypermedia in 1963 and published them in 1965. And the World Wide Web, with all of its hyperlinks, didn't come out until the early 90s, which, you know, uh, you know, by, you know, invented by, at that time, Tim Berners-Lee. Ted Nelson was born June 17, 1937, in Los Angeles, California. He was born to the Emmy Award-winning director, Ralph Nelson, and the Academy Award-winning actress, Celeste Holm. He uh, actually had theater in his genes. His uh, parents' marriage was brief, and he was mostly raised by his grandparents, first in Chicago and later in Greenwich Village. Nelson earned a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Swarthmore College in 1959. Uh, when he was a junior, I mean, because he was, he always aspired to be a playwright or, or a movie producer, you know, from his, uh, you know, coming from, a, that's what his parents were doing. Uh, he wrote his first rock concert, maybe it's a rock play, called uh, Anything and Everything, it was a tale about student life in Swarthmore. Yeah, so uh, I would call it a, a rock musical, maybe. Yeah, um, that's a better. I and think this is better. 1957 uh, when he actually uh, wrote this. So rock and roll, you have to think about the, the sound of rock and roll at that time. Um, and uh, so this is what, uh, here's the song from, from that musical. And this is for real. Again, sometimes we do little jokey bits here. This is <laughs> actually, actually the song from this probably first rock musical, which was written and pro produced in 1957. Do the rock a doodle do, do the rock a doodle do, the kid and kaboodle. 
Yeah, a little piano bit there. You know, it's very rock and roll from the 50s. Yeah. I just see those bobby socks right now, those those cuffed jeans, you know, the dungarees. We called them dungarees back then, didn't we? We did. So, Doc, what was it about? Because he was talking about student life uh, in Swarthmore, and you said it actually had yeah, a, a real-life context, he, right? He was actually sort of outlining all the trials and tribulations to become a student. You know, he talked about faculty that were hard to deal with, deans that were unreasonable. But he highlighted in the play the, the battle between the nerds and the frat boys. Some things never change. Some things never change. <laughs> they never, never change. Of course, he was the nerd. And the frat boys made fun of, the, of, of his long hair. And then he made fun of the nerd's sterile life in their, in their houses insulated from the real world oh wow uh-huh. and um he, and actually in the middle of the play a bunch of the fraternity guys walked out in the play because it was actually oh quite they were offended Woo. yeah <laughs> then he made they can dish it out but the, they can't take it those frat boys this is what i'm they thinking couldn't, they could not take it no 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 they could not take it let me tell you i mean this is really it had nothing to do with this mm-hmm. when i was in uh when i was in college i was actually teaching physics lab you know i was a physics major so they they would have me teach the physics lab to the you know to the sophomores and i had a bunch of frat guys in my physics lab Uh-oh. and so what i would do is you know they would have the standard experiments that they would have you do in physics lab say like with the air tables you you know you do you know conservation of momentum and that sort of thing but what i did i would take the experiments and totally turn them around so i had them calculating the friction of the air table. It was a completely different experiment. So they came in and I, and I taught them a lot about, um, about, you know, uh, accuracy of measurement because you really couldn't measure the friction of the air table. All the frat boys took the experiment out of the files and copied the answers of the old experiment that I didn't do. Oh, you caught them cheating. And the oh, new my goodness. And the new experiment they didn't even mention because they were just copying it right out of the out of the frat boy files. Wow. <laughs> so uh, they hated me. I can and see that. Yeah. I made up my own tests. And uh, they didn't expect that from some sophomore uh, teaching assistant. But not at all. I'm sure not. I'm sure you were so the first to ever do that, Doc. The, the you were the first to ever switch up the curriculum is what I'm thinking. I don't know how that came up, but it just... Yeah, it's a great story, though. I love it. Like, like beginning to, you know, bubble up as I, as I look at Ted Nelson. Now, then he wrote an experimental student film called The Epiphany of Slocum, Furlough. And this was a student that was, like, lonely, having all kinds of issues in school. And he finally discovered the meaning of life out of all of this academic you know, conflict. So once again, this shows us where Ted Nelson's idea was about what he wanted to do with his life, filmmaking, writing, mu- musicals, things like that, theater stuff, drama. He felt yeah. that, you know, that, uh, that filmmaking was going to be his calling, that he would become a movie producer like his dad. Now, then he went to Harvard, uh, and, he, and he, where he, was, he was getting a, um, uh, you know, went to Harvard, and, and he saw computers for the first time at Harvard. And this was back when they first had computer screens, like big TVs. And he saw that computer screen, and he says, wow, that's like an interactive movie. 
Which is interesting market- because back then, I mean, think about it. Gra- we didn't have the graphics we have now. We didn't have the animation, the video, blah, blah, blah. But he still saw the screen, and he's thinking in you know, cinematographic terms. That's right. So he, he was thinking this is an opportunity to really excel in my theatrics. Now, he, he went to graduate school at University of uh, Chicago, and then uh, he earned a master's degree in sociology uh, from, uh, from Harvard in 1962. He, he started there, and he started in Chicago in so- sociology, and then he transferred to, uh, to Harvard and got his master's in sociology at Harvard. And, of course, while he was working on his master's, I guess he used the computer for his word processor. Now, after Harvard, after he got his master's degree, he wrote to uh, John Lilly, I mean, this this guy had an interesting sort of career that jumped all over the place. Now, John Lilly was was a dolphin researcher, and he had a few ideas to study the dolphin language because he was he was interested in language, and he says, you know, dolphins have their own language. I'd like to study that language. So Lilly was impressed with him and hired him. And Nelson spent a few years at Lilly's Communication Research Lab in Miami, analyzing dolphin behavior. And guess what? Making movies about dolphin activity. <laughs> oh, okay. All their activity? Yeah, mm, not all okay. their activity. Their speaking activity. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> and from 64 to 68, he, uh, he taught sociology at Vassar College. Uh, ultimately, he got a PhD in media and governance from Keio University back in 2002, much later in his career. Now, his dream of using computers... Uh, was to use computers as a repository for the world's knowledge. See, uh, there, there are two ways to look at You could look at the computer as a, delay, as a um, display medium where you're going to do, uh, say, word processing. And he was highly critical of the people that just, used, that just viewed the computer uh, as the regular world. Like when you create a Word document, it's like you're just typing on a piece of paper. Like if you look at Microsoft Word and you look in the display mode, it looks like you're just typing on a piece of paper. And then you print it out, it prints out on paper. So he says, why do you have something so powerful as a computer and you just bring the paper world into the computer? He said, that is so limiting. And in a sense, Steve Jobs just brought the paper world into the computer. He said, it's much more powerful than this. We can have linkages between information around the world and we can see connections between different types of knowledge and we can use that to create new knowledge. So he envisioned a world where we had a very sophisticated linkage between, and he, he did initially in literature, where you could look at a piece of literature and you could see where all the ideas for every sentence came from, and it would link back to the source material directly. Now, moreover, the links were two-dimensional, so you could go to the source material and you could see all the places where the source material has been linked to something more recent. And so it's two-way linkages, and you can see how knowledge evolves in time and in space. But we should stress, he never actually realized this. It's not like this existed. And, no. and, and I have trouble visualizing it when you think about... You know, the one-way hyperlink, it makes sense because multiple people might want to highlight different things. But then why would you go to the other side? How would they 
how would you possibly integrate it into the other site where there's a link going back? I mean, at least the way the internet is constructed today, I can't quite see how that would actually work in, well, what, in practice. What you, what you would have to do on a two-dimensional link, when you set a link up to one a document on the uh, on the internet, you have to get permission. That would be that. Would, but think about how cumbersome that could become. You get permission because now all of a sudden you have rights control. Okay, I mean, one of the problems with the internet, people cut and paste, they link to stuff that they don't own. So now all of a sudden there's rights control that's given back. And so you, you have version control. And so you have a much more robust database that goes both ways. He said, but it would be hard to program. You are right. And that's why it was a, it was a hard vision to actually implement. Uh, he created, he called this Project Xanadu. Now that's named after a poem. Did you, is that, that's one of those that schoolboys, uh, well, school children, I should say, learn uh, by heart and some schools are used to anyway. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. Did, did you recite, did you memorize that one ever? Uh, we did it in, yeah, in, in high school. Right? Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. high school poem, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so Xanadu. That's, 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 that's Xanadu. From, from Coleridge's poem. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Yes. yes. Xanadu. And so, uh, and, so and, and it was like a, he wanted a simple user. So what he wanted, he wanted a simple user interface. So all this complexity that we talked about at the two-way links with the version control, with the permissions, would all be hidden. It would it would just be um, be done. so. For instance, if somebody would publish a, a document on the internet, they might embed in the document permission a permission set of rules. So when you link to the document, if you satisfy the permission set of rules, it's automatically enabled. Ah, that, that's see. a good point that you just made now, because I had been thinking just a few minutes ago that you know you'd actually have to get permission every time, and it could be cumbersome. But if you start figuring out a way to do the programming language, and then it automatically either happens or doesn't right then and there, that right. would that would streamline exactly. the process. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and if you build all the links in the internet with this infrastructure in place, it's just done automatically. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, in 1965, he presented a paper called Complex Information Processing, a file structure for, com for the complex, the changing, and the indeterminate. He presented that at the ACM National Conference, and that's where he first coined the term hypertext. That's the first published thing of hypertext, which, of course, Tim Berners-Lee talked extensively about when he invented the browser and the World Wide Web in the early 90s. Now, his efforts with Xanadu, because he, 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 he wrote a lot of books. He, his first book was Computer Lib, Dream Machines, published in 74. And we then should remember lib meaning a liberation, like there was women's lib at the time, and lots of other forms of yes. liberation were talked about. So it's computer lib in that context. Computer liberation, yeah. that's right. Then he talked about the home computer revolution in 1977. This And this was all about the uh, about the time that the, that the homebrew computer club was there and the Mac was coming out. The IBM PC didn't come out until 85. Then he talked about literary machines in 1981. This is back in the formative times of, of, the, of the PC age. Now, in 1978, he talked to some executives from IBM, and he had significant impact on IBM's thinking when he outlined his vision for the potential of personal computing. Uh, because three years after he 
had a brainstorming session with IBM, they launched the IBM PCs. He talked to them in uh, he talked to them in '78, and then uh, they launched the PC in the early '80s. Now, now Nelson never successfully launched his company. Now his dream was to have Project Xanadu as a company where he would basically license his technology and make a boatload of money. And then he would be able to produce plays with the money. I mean, that was his, that was his dream. But he, he never could get Project Xanadu off the ground. So in order just to pay the bills, he took a bunch of, a, a series of positions and consultancies. He worked at, for instance, at Harcourt Brace and Company. Now that's where he met Douglas Engelbart, and Douglas Engelbart was all another visionary who who had the uh, who had a demo, the uh, uh, where he demonstrated the mouse, the graphical user interface. Uh, he had this huge demo that actually changed the world of of interactive computers, and actually it changed uh, the way that Steve Jobs saw computers, and that was a precursor to the Macintosh. Uh, he was at Brown University where he developed the hypertext editing system and file retrieval and editing system. That was where he was trying to actually implement a full-blown version of Xanadu. You know, I have to say something, though. The fact that he named it Xanadu, which is a completely mythical place, almost is like a Freudian slip, like he knew it was never going to become a reality. I know. Yeah, that's... I think that's because when he was at Brown University, he got in a big fight with these guys. Oh man! And and and, and this this was the issue, and this was always his problem. He wanted absolute perfection. They had to actually implement everything to the vision that he had. No compromises allowed. And these guys at Brown said, "Look, we got to compromise somewhere, if, or we're not going to, or we're not going to produce an output." Especially since he's only offering a vision, he's not there to help you figure out how to do it. Right. And so he's being very demanding without providing any leeway or any specific ideas, specific so, implementation yeah, so he, ideas. So I that's know, a problem. So he left Brown. Yeah. It was a it was a big fight mm. when he left Brown. Yeah. And, and these guys were his friends when he when he started out. But he was he was just simply uncompromising in his. Uh, in, in his approach to this, and uh, you know, there there was an article in Wired that said Xanadu is the is uh, is mythical vaporware. I know, so it's I the longest vaporware project in history. Yeah, so I looked up the term after I read that bit, and it, <laughs> vaporware is something that never or only briefly comes into existence. So it's sort of like always being promised, but it's not there. So it's vaporware. Yeah, that's right. That's and, great. And, and that that was his problem. Then he went to Bell Labs and he worked on a, a hypertext related defense project that was classified. Uh, so Ted Nelson claims credit for inventing the back button when he was at when he was at Brown working on the hypertext uh, uh, project. Uh, he said we need a back button, and and these guys said that's ah, stupid. Nobody needs a back button. So they they put a back button in that project. Of course, a back button just re reverses the last step that you did. And um, and but, so the back that button sounds we very, all use it now. Yeah, I mean that sounds like I couldn't live without. I mean you couldn't. I, I I'm no. surprised there was any question at all about implementing it. I'm surprised it wasn't there in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that's but, a but big then, surprise. Course, the, but the but the program the back button you've you've got to keep. Uh, You've got to store every transaction that you did yes. so you can reverse it. So there's a lot of programming, and you've got to store all this stuff 
So it was a project to do the back button because you may want to back more than one times back. So, uh, so he convinced them at Brown, and they, they did implement the back button. And then he also, uh, you know, uh, and, and he did it with regard to hypertext in case you click on something and, and you go to location A. But now you want to go back to where you were. You hit the back button and you go back to the original location. So they, he implemented the back button with respect to hypertext. So that's exactly like the back button in the browser, actually. And uh, so his work on the hypertext and the, the back button and all preceded the World Wide Web by, by more than 30 years. Now, he conducted research. He, he tried to start his own company, the Nelson Organization. He founded it in 1968. And then he founded the Computopia Corporation. He co-founded in 77. And they had clients like IBM, Brown University, Western Electric, University of California. And they were trying to, in one way or another, implement the perfect Xanadu system. Now, there are a couple of developers that he worked with, Mark Miller and Stuart Green. They convinced him to, to, uh, to join Datapoint uh, down in San Antonio, Texas, as chief software engineer in 1981. So mm -hmm. he was there briefly, but he didn't stay long, probably because they wouldn't want to implement his vision perfectly. And then he went into state in San Antonio for welding various consultancies until the Xanadu technology at uh, Datapoint was purchased by Autodesk in 1988. Now, the guy who owned Autodesk actually kind of shared his vision about what Xanadu could be. What and was, so he what was great Autodesk? Hopes that finally, Xanadu could be implemented there at uh, there uh, by Autodesk. Yeah, what but, what was Autodesk? What is that? It it I, it was uh, it, I don't know some kind of software office software Autodesk. Did you uh, was it familiar to you when you came across this reference? No, I, I don't I, remember I, it at all. Used, I've never used Autodesk. Right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. I've never used Autodesk. Yeah. But uh, I mean, Autodesk I don't think is around anymore. Uh, but but the guy died. Uh huh. And and as you would expect, Project Xanadu went nowhere. Mm. Uh, now then, he he serves as a as a non-managerial distinguished fellow at the San in the San Francisco Bay Area until 1993, working at Autodesk. You notice, non-managerial distinguished <laughs> fellow. Yeah, yeah, you can talk, but don't don't tell people what to do. That's right. From 2004 to 2008, he was fellow. Uh, he was a fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute. Now, while the project Xanadu failed to flourish, some aspects of his visions were fulfilled by Tim Berners-Lee invention of the World Wide Web in 1994. Uh, now, uh, Nelson feels that the World Wide Web, and in particular XML, extensible markup language, or any markup language at that point, is a gross oversimplification of his vision because these are one-way links without permission, without version control. His, the core technical difference between the Nelsonian network, mm -hmm. <laughs> Nelsonian network, and what we have become is that, you know, Nelson's networks were two-way instead of one-way. Now, HTML is precisely what he's trying to prevent. Quotes that you cannot follow to their origin, no version management, no rights management. And you could have a dead link. Now, you see with Project Xanadu, if a particular source link dies, since it's two-way, it's automatically removed from the document that's using it. You don't have a dead link. 
But in HTML, especially, now you go to Wikipedia, you'll find dead links all over the place because they're one way. They don't know when the source document dies. In 2011, uh, Nelson start work, started working on a new information structure, ZigZag, which, which was a way, if, if you look at some of his videos, you can see how ZigZag worked. It, it, it was actually the underlying structure of something that he called Xanadu space, where you could see this on, this, uh, on the screen, you could see the document you're looking at, and all of the other documents it references are smaller pictures on the same screen. So you click on a sentence and you'll see the link that goes back to the other document. This is Xanadu space. Then you could click on the other document and you could see links from that document other places. You, could, you, can, you can travel through this linked interconnection space graphically. That was Xanadu space as it operated on ZigZag. In 1988, the Byte magazine published an article about Nelson's ideas titled Managing Immense Storage. Now, this stimulated discussion within the computer industry and encouraged people to experiment with hypertext features. In 1998, at the seventh Worldwide Web Conference in Brisbane, Australia, Nelson was awarded the Yuri Rubinsky Memorial Award. So they did honor him at the Worldwide Web Conference uh, as a visionary who helped formulate in the beginning some of the basic ideas that are used in the web. Which is in significant, you know, because he's not just some whack job spouting stuff. Other people did recognize the value, at least, of his ideas, even if they weren't implemented the way he imagined them to be. They did. Yeah. He, he was highly respected. What, what they didn't like was that he was so negative. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but they highly respected his ideas. In 2014, ACM SIG CHI honored him with a special recognition award. Now, his net worth is estimated between $1 million and $5 million. He never really made a lot of money, per se, but he, uh, he, he, he certainly uh, lived his passion. He lived on a, uh, he lived on a, on a, on a boat. In the, uh, he was on a houseboat in Sausalito, and, uh, and he, he did live his passion. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Ted Nelson, the man who coined the, the term hypertext and hypermedia. Yeah, and we'll talk a little, little bit more about Ted Nelson and his ideas, but this is a, a literary reference. So here's Getty Lee and Rush's interpretation of, uh, of that Xanadu poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. To stand within the pleasure dome Decreed by Kubla Khan It's technology. It's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now, Ted Nelson uh, thinks that people don't really understand what technology is. They think Windows is technology or, or the Macintosh is technology. Actually, he said that's packaging. The Windows operating system is packaging. The Macintosh operating system is packaging. Uh, word processing, packaging. The underlying technology is like uh, compression, data communication, TCP IP, the protocol of the internet. And so we confuse the difference between packaging and technology. And he says the thing is that packaging is controlled by politics, the politics of money, the politics of company. Uh, it's very, very political. And you can have very many packages that compete, and then the ones with the most political clout win. That's kind of his view. Now, here are a few things that Ted Nelson had to say. Uh, the purpose of computing is human freedom. He believes that the original dream is still possible for everyone, but not with today's systems. Beginners have the notion that computers can help them stay organized. Then they've got to face the incredible difficulty and disappointment of learning today's systems and either give up or settle for less. So needless to say, Ted Nelson is disappointed with the direction of computer technology. Now his friend uh, and visionary, Doug Engelbart, performed the mother of all demos. He demonstrated technology like the mouse, like graphical user interface. Now Ted Engelbart and Ted Nelson Dr. Engelbart and Ted Nelson became acquaintances at the dawn of the computer era. They envisioned and invented the computer that we've come to take for granted. Now, Ted Nelson's felt that the world of knowledge could be graphically linked uh, to fuel the creative outpour of humankind. He believed that information was becoming so complicated that unless we simplified the information, which was growing exponentially, that eventually we would be inundated with too much information. Now, his ideas remain profound and forward-looking. Anybody who really cares about the future of media, intellect, and culture 
or how information technology can augment that should consider his work. Now, he's trying to really invent something that will make a difference. Now, the problem is uh, he could never accept good enough. Uh, you know, anybody who's been in the world of research and development knows that good enough is the enemy of perfect. And Ted Nelson rejected every good enough idea and wanted perfection. That's why he could never maintain teams to work around him. He uh, always strove for perfection. He viewed himself as another Steve Jobs. Now, Steve Jobs could, uh, could, invent, could, could envision technology. He was not a programmer. I mean, he didn't invent the iPod, for instance. Uh, somebody came to him with the idea for the iPod, but he perfected it. He, com he combined it with the phone. He packaged it. He knew how to package things. He knew how to make the right compromises to, to actually uh, sell a product. So Steve Jobs, uh, one time uh, Steve Wozniak said, well, you know, why should you run Apple? You, you can't even write code. And Steve Jobs said, I'm not a developer. I'm a conductor. I conduct everybody that that actually writes code or writes an, a graphical user interface. And I make certain that the orchestra sounds good to the user. And you know, Steve, Jobs was, not, he, Steve Jobs was not the easiest person in the world to work with, but somehow he must have had just enough you know, of that quality in him, more than Ted Nelson, to actually get people to do what he needed them to do. Well, yeah, Steve Jobs would listen to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he had designers. Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean... You could convince Steve Jobs if he was wrong. He would listen to people, but he was very opinionated that you had to serve the user. So he had the same long-term vision as Ted Nelson, but he had the ability to see that good enough is not the enemy and that you always don't have to be perfect. And if you look at what Apple did, they, they would launch something and then they would improve it and then they would improve it and then they would improve it. So Steve Jobs would feel something that was good enough. And then he knew ultimately his vision would be developed through subsequent improvements. Which, which is actually a great business model. It's called planned obsolescence. I don't know if he was planning the obsolescence per se, but that's exactly why you keep buying a new iPhone every few years. You know, that's that's exactly right. Whereas Ted Nelson wanted nothing delivered until it was perfect. And that's why Project Xanadu was always mm. vaporware. But it, he's still, there's a lot to learn from Ted Nelson. I went back, I didn't really know him. I, I sort of learned about him when we did Jaron uh, Lanier and, uh, you know, as in a profile a few weeks ago. And uh, Ted Nelson inspired Jaron Lanier. And so I said, well, this guy's got something worthwhile. And so he is an inspirational guy, but just simply not. Not a good manager. Yeah, I think so, we should, you know, we've, we've criticized him a bit. I, I think he should speak for himself. He, he actually put out a video in, in 2017, so uh, just a day after his 80th birthday. Uh, here's, here's 30 seconds from, from what he has to say. Let's let him talk for himself for just a moment. Okay, good idea. I have to be immodest because no one, I have no one to stand up for me. Uh, only I have the big picture, and I can't count on people figuring these things out after I'm dead. So here's what I stood for from the beginning. Freedom and privacy and creativity and understanding. New forms of writing and new forms of education, which I thought would be fostered by the hypertext system I was working on. I also stood for non-hierarchical ways of structuring, maintaining true archives, clarity of visualization, making people smarter.
You know, it's funny, though. You can see where he's a little bit disagreeable. You know, that that idea, I can't rely on other people to figure out what I stood for. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I he's, know. He, he, he starts with a shot across the bow, you know, right away. <laughs> he he does. And when uh, when Doug Engelbart was, uh, he, he gave his eulogy of Doug Engelbart, and he gave a slashing criticism of every company that Doug Engelbart ever worked for wow. because they, they also dumped on Doug. Mm-hmm. Doug came out with the mother of all demos. He was like a visionary, but he was pushed aside. So his whole eulogy was all political. <laughs> <laughs> And so that was sort of him. Yeah. Listen, I think what we should do yeah. is I think we should just jump to the history of emoji. What do you think? Yes, I think so, since we talked about it a little earlier and we have more to say on the subject. Yes. That's right. So let's talk about the emoji and where it all began. Now, the New York Times published the first emoji. Get this. Eight. 1862. So that freaks me. Not 1962, 1862. So what was that emoji? They they printed out a copy of Abraham Lincoln's uh, speech, and they put in the uh, a colon with an end period, which is a smiley face. They put it right in the middle of that speech. Wow. Now, that's that's weird. So they were indicating what? That the crowd approved uh, of, of yeah, that they were, statement? Yeah, they were they're indicating prep crowd approval. Mm-hmm. Now, there were others that said it was a typo. <laughs> oh, so we, well, we'll never know now. So, so we don't know because it was actually at a point that would indicate crowd approval. And so was it a typo or was it real? But that first appeared in 1862. Okay. Then in 1881, the satirical magazine Puck, which I'd never really heard of before, included real emoticons as part of their, uh, typographical art issue on the 30th of March of 1881. Now, using typography, they portrayed four emotions, joy, melancholy, indifference, and astonishment. So this really counts, though. This is a true emoticon where they were using, you know, punctuation to show show emotion. Yeah. So like like melancholy had a flat mouth and flat eyes. Astonishment showed big eyes with, say, capital O and a big mouth. Like, yeah. Oh. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, and so those were those were the first true emoticons back in 1881. Now, in 1886, cow emoji, cow emoji was a big thing in Japan. I mean, really, Japan is the place where they really took off. Uh, now, using the katakana character set, it represented human expression and particularly focused on the eyes. So the Japanese felt that the eyes expressed more emotion than the mouth. Now, in the U.S., the emoticons have a lot of emphasis on the mouth, not the eyes. But in Japan, it was all on the eyes. Now, in 1999, Sigataka Korita, a Japanese artist, created the first 176 modern emoji. Now he worked for iMode, which was a which was a Japanese internet uh, service company. Kurita Kurita created 12 by 12 pixel images that that sort of worked like text, and they and they would appear on the on the keyboards of the iMode users. And he had categories for the uh, emoji like weather, traffic, technology, and the moon. Yeah, which is so, another interesting development because emojis like are supposed to express emotions, but if you look through your phone and which ones are available, there are things like weather and technology, you know, non-emotions yeah. as well. Yeah, the moon, 
Yeah. So, you know, it turns out that that, that first set of the uh, 176 is is like is like at the uh, is like now in art museums as like as like iconic artwork. Wow. Going all the way back to 19, 1999. Now, they didn't become really actively used in the U.S. until 2007. Google became the first U.S. company to incorporate emoji into their email services, Gmail. Back in 2007, uh, the reason they did that is they wanted to expand their reach into Japan and Asia, and emojis were used extensively in Japan and Asia back because of the uh, of the the work back by Karita back in 1999. And that was reflected too in terminology because we used to say emoticon, like an icon, an emotional icon, mm-hmm. and then emoji just kind of took over the language right around then too. The fact that we That's actually right. used a Japanese word. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, Google released their own 79 animated emoji uh, for uh, for Gmail uh, the next year in 2008. Mm. Now, Apple launched their own version of emojis in November of 2007, and they were made made available with the iOS 2.2 update. Well, that's a long time ago. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we're at 14. We're, we're, at, we're just about at 15 right now. That's right. Yeah. Now, where emoji really became, uh, you know, accepted, they were made part of the Unico- Unicode standard. See, originally we had ASCII to represent symbols, and you could in ASCII code you could represent 256 symbols. But if you go to say the Japanese language, there wasn't enough, and so they 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 wanted to create a, an address space that could have more characters. So they created Unicode, which was a two-bit address, basically two bytes. Uh, 16 bits. Uh, and so with Unicode, you could you could represent many, many more characters. And so the unicorns, the Unicode standard of 2010 included emoji for the first time. And that's became, when they became accessible worldwide. Now, in 2011, emoji finally made it to the Apple keyboard in the iOS 5 update. That, that, that once they were in a part of Unicode, it was easy to add them to the keyboard. Two years later, Android made emoji accessible on their keyboard as well. By 2017, Facebook revealed that 5 billion emojis were sent each day in Messenger, if you can imagine. Wow, yeah. In 2017, this one this was the big year for emoji, iOS 11 introduced face tracking emoji called Animoji that enabled users to create custom animated emojis using their own face. Yeah, we're just about out of time, Doc. It's, wow. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. We well, didn't even get to everything to... we wanted to say about this topic either, did we? No, we didn't. If you want to go to Emojipedia.org, you can find out all about emojis. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and let them know that you heard about the programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.